The Hard Conversation, The Key to the Future of the American Jewish Community, Second Day Rosh Hashanah, 5780-2019. Two mothers were desperate, desperate to find a shidduch for their respective daughters. Living in a small shtetl in Europe where everyone knew everyone else, Prospects of finding a good match were, shall we say, poor. And so each mother wrote to the rabbi of the yeshiva in the nearby town, imploring him to send a shidduch for their daughters. Each woman received an assurance from the yeshiva's rabbi that he would send one of his best students to their town to meet with him and to meet the prospective in-laws. A few days later, the train from that nearby town pulled into the station and the crowds had, after the crowds had dispersed, one lonely yeshiva bocha remained thin and gaunt. He had the complexion of a person who was going outside for the first time in his life. He looked intelligent, intelligent, whatever that means, and was clearly a pious man each woman ran toward the bewildered young man. The young man froze, paralyzed like a deer in headlights. The women grabbed him simultaneously, each grabbing his coat firmly. He's mine, said the first woman. He's mine, said the second. And they pulled at him, unable to loosen the grips, the other's grip. After a while, one of the women said, this is silly. Let's take the young man to the synagogue and let our rabbi decide. Fine, said the other. They went directly to the rabbi, each recounted how they had contacted the rabbi in the next town who had sent them a yeshiva bocher. The rabbi listened intently to both women and finally the rabbi spoke to each woman. To the first, he asked, what do you think is a good way to handle this situation. And the first woman said, I think we should flip a coin. The rabbi then turned to the second woman and said, and how do you think we should solve our problem? How can this be resolved? And the second woman said, well, since we both saw him at the same time and grabbed his coat at the same time, I think that we should cut him in half, to which the rabbi responded, now there's a mother-in-law. This classic Jewish joke has its roots in the Talmud. It reminds us of the famous Talmudic passage studied by children when they begin to study Talmud, a passage which I've shared with you before. The passage is found at the very beginning of the tractate tractate known as Baba Metziah, chapter 1, Mishnah 1, here's what the Talmud describes. Two people see a garment on the ground with no one around to claim it. The garment is hefker, ownerless, which means that finders can be keepers, except in this case, two have seen it, grabbed it, and each declared it to belong to him. One says, I found it. The other says, I found it. One says, it's mine. The other says, it's mine. So how can we resolve this in a way that isn't a joke? Each has a claim to the talit, but neither's claim 
is so compelling as to, as to be given the talit with the other receiving nothing. Furthermore, if the garment is split, giving each one a half, which is what we call the mother-in-law's suggestion, everyone loses. So what do we do? Each disputant has a legitimate claim of partial ownership. Each disputant believes that his claim has greater merit than the others, and each believes that he is right. I imagine them staring at each other, holding on to the garment tightly as they can, not giving an inch, but at a loss regarding how to find an equitable way to resolve the issues, how to compromise. Neither knows how to talk to the other using the language and tone of reconciliation and compromise. Yesterday, I spoke of a culture of hate which permeates our and Israeli societies. Today, I want to focus on civil discourse and reconciliation and compromise. This topic, the ability to listen with empathy and respond with sensitivity, are qualities and aspects of conversations which we must conduct within the American Jewish community. We've lost the ability and perhaps the desire to engage in conversations of any significant weight in ways which do not threaten a sense of personal well-being on either side and in a way that allows friendships to remain intact following the conversation. Is there a way to converse, a way to agree on some things and disagree on others? We're like those two people holding on tightly to that same item, each clinging to his or her own truth with an iron grip, believing that the garment or perhaps the tightly held belief belongs only to them. In her best-selling book, The Art of Gathering, Priya Parker explores the purpose and quality of gatherings meetings and other get-togethers. Her book is useful as a source of guidance for those of us for whom meetings seem at times cruel and unusual punishment. She offers practical suggestions for convening and orchestrating meetings. And she has an entire chapter about difficult conversations, conversations about subjects that we have been told never to discuss, sex, politics, and religion. I think Ms. Parker is correct. These conversations can and should and must take place. And I'd like to tell you how. Today, I want to offer five suggestions for engaging in difficult and emotionally charged conversations. These rules are part of my effort to deal with the difficult topics which have polarized our country. As electioneering is in full swing, Democrats and Republicans must find ways to come together. And I do this under the heading of RNCDNC. And I'm sure that every DNR knows what these initials stand for. RNC, of course, means Rabbi Neil Cooper's Guide for DNC, Difficult 
and neglected conversations. The first rule is name-calling or labeling. Name-calling has taken its root in the United States as an effective, albeit mean-spirited, tactic to disarm and frustrate one's opposition. We see this practice occurring more frequently now with the increasing support and encouragement of those who hold some of the highest office, offices in this country. And so I call this first rule the President Trump rule. Assigning a name to a person belies the complexity and nuances of a position. Name-calling denigrates and belittles, and it must stop. Anti-Semitism is one of those labels we need to extricate from our vocabularies. That's not to say that there is no longer a problem of anti-Semitism, but the term has been overused to the point where it is it's, it is very, its very specific meaning has been seriously devalued. When one member of the Knesset calls another an anti-Semite, which happens frequently, the term itself has lost its specific and very dangerous meaning. Today, today those who criticize Israel are called anti-Semitic. Were that the case, half of Israel would be categorized as anti-Semitic. When one is labeled by the other as an anti-Semite, the conversation then becomes focused on whether a particular position or a particular person is or is not anti-Semitic, rather than focusing on the motivation of our critics. Criticism of Israel is fine and appropriate in a dispute over policies and politics. That's not anti-Semitism. When the conversation veers to a discussion of the legitimacy of the Jewish state, however, when there's a lack of concern for the lives and well-being of all the people who live in the land, when the discussion is more visceral than substantive, characterized by raised voices and arguments intended to vilify and delegitimize, when simplistic and hateful labels are used to characterize Jews or Israel, then the desire to understand each other has given way to expressions that are motivated by hate. So my advice, steer clear of those arguments and discussions. No, no minds have ever been changed as a result of these sorts of discussions. Once name-calling and labeling are introduced into a conversation, there's no more room for, a, for meaningful conversation. At that point, I suggest that you talk about the Phillies or the Eagles or some other unpleasant topic. I wrote a letter to the congregation a month or so ago in which I discussed the travel ban placed on the two Muslim women who are representatives to the U.S. Congress. In my letter, I expressed my concern about the ban. I believe that Israel made a mistake in banning these women. Israel is always open to criticism. And those criticism and those that certainly would have been leveled by these women, that those criticisms do not harm or injure Israel. 
Israel has nothing to hide, lots to share. Israel is strong enough to endure legitimate criticism, to learn from it, and to be strengthened by those criticisms. If the American Jewish community is going to remain strong and vibrant, if we are to heal the rifts between the American Jewish community and the growing gap between American Jews and Israelis, we need to figure out how to speak about divisive issues. I have plenty of things to say about how I feel let down, ignored, and overlooked by Israel. But I also believe that there is and must be an unbreakable bond between the American Jewish community and the state of Israel. We're still trying to define and strengthen that relationship by engaging in conversations which may not help us come to a unified position, but will help us to understand and appreciate each other more. Both Israel and the American Jewish community need each other. We don't have the luxury, I don't believe, to allow the bonds between us to break. And that means that we need to talk in the United States, in Israel, as Americans and as Jews. And that means that we cannot use labels to characterize each other. We cannot revert to name calling to get where we need to go. And so number one uh, rule is the President Trump rule. We need to stop the name calling. Number two, we need to stand where the other stands. When we're confronted by beliefs and positions that are challenging to us, one needs, I believe, to put him or herself in the other's place. Imagine what the world would look like from where they are standing. You know, one of the most rewarding aspects of my rabbinate has been in the area of interfaith dialogue. And I've learned a great deal about Christianity and about Judaism from that involvement. A few months ago, I was invited to the Mount Hermon Church in West Philadelphia to speak on the topic of Israel in the Hebrew Bible. My good friend, who some of you have met, Bishop Hayward Smith, invited me to speak as part of a series of classes for a course being given for members of several local churches. The students were chosen from those who wanted to delve deeper into their understanding of Christianity. And so I spoke about Abraham, who left his home and his birthplace to go to the land of Israel. And from the time of Abraham to the Jewish community today, our collective DNA as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as descendants of the children of Israel, includes a very powerful pull toward the land of Israel. And so I spoke of my connections to the land, to the, to the state of Israel, to its language, its people, which now include two of my three children and six of my grandchildren. At the end of my presentation at the church, I invited questions and one question remains with me. And here was the question. Given all the pain and the suffering and the death and the sorrow 
the wars, both ancient and modern, over the land, and the claim of Palestinian Arabs, what does it feel like to be a Jew? And I thought for a moment and responded in two parts. First, the Jewish people are the most hated people in all of human history. Why do people hate us? I really don't know. Except for the fact that we believe differently and we behave and celebrate differently. At the same time, Judaism has outlasted every evil empire. As part of this ancient tradition, I have confidence that we shall persevere. And so it feels at once tiring and energizing. To be a Jew feels simultaneously depressing and joyful, living with confidence that we shall survive. However long it takes, we'll still be here. But to feel Jewish also means to be on the periphery of society at times. At times, we Jews have been marginalized. At times, part of a group of which the rest of the world is wary and suspicious. It's not that we want to be contentious, but because we are different, historically speaking, we must be prepared to be taken to task and asked to explain, criticized, and even ostracized because of those differences. At that point, I told the woman questioner that she had asked an excellent but a difficult question. So let me ask you a similarly difficult question. I asked her, what does it feel like to be an African-American with your legacy of slavery and fighting for civil rights, of fighting prejudice and bigotry? And the woman who asked the question now answered, I think to be an African-American feels a bit like being a Jew. When we can understand the other, when we can stand in another's place, we're better prepared to understand each other. Number two is the Mount Hermon Church rule. Rule number three, we must choose our words and tone carefully. Three times a day, we pray designated prayers, which always include the Amidah, and each time we recite the Amidah, we conclude with a personal prayer or meditation that begins with these words, Elohai Nitzor, my God, help me stop my lips from uttering evil, just as you protect me from those who curse me. Open my heart to your Torah, confound the thoughts of those who wish me harm. When we speak with those with whom we differ, we think of words which are cruel and biting and angry. We think of terms that will be confrontational. And we use those words and terms hoping to injure the recipient. But something else I've learned as one with whom such conversations are not infrequent the words that we initially would like to use defile us more than the person at whom the words were directed. 
A good friend shared with me a story of a man who owned a parrot. It's a beautiful parrot, smart, but he had a very foul mouth. And no matter what anyone would say to the bird, the response would contain a curse word. Finally, the bird's owner said, if you say one more dirty word, you'll get a severe punishment. Not five minutes later, the bird could not restrain itself and blurted out a word on the do not say list. That's it, said the owner. He promptly took the parrot and put him into the freezer. 15 minutes later, the man took the half frozen bird out of the freezer and said, and the man said, have you learned your lesson now? Absolutely, said the parrot. I shall never again utter those words, but if you don't mind me asking, what did those chickens do? Words spoken in anger have never convinced anyone that they are wrong. On the contrary, that language inflames, it demeans, it defames, and it antagonizes while denying the possibility of reconciliation. This is the parrot rule. Choose your words carefully. Rule number four, we need to be passionate, informed, and articulate about our message. Being passionate in your opposition to a position or argument is easy. It's far more difficult, however, and perhaps more important to be passionate and informed about what you do believe. I remember many years ago at a convention of the Rabbinical Assembly, which took place at the Concord Hotel in the Catskills, where they say the food wasn't good and the portions were too small. The Rabbinical Assembly invited evangelist uh, Jerry Falwell to speak to the crowd. After a rousing speech about Israel and the God of the Jews and the Christians, he took questions and one of my senior colleagues stood to ask the Reverend a question. He said, Reverend Falwell, you're targeting Jews for conversion to Christianity. We cannot have a close collegial relation if you are focusing your missionary efforts on the Jews, can you commit to stopping your attempts to convert Jews? Falwell smiled and responded. He said, Rabbi, I would love for us to have a closer and more collegial relationship, but let me tell you this. Missionary work is our bread and butter. It's what we do. So I can't say we will no longer proselytize. But if our missionaries are enticing your members away from the fold of Jewish life, don't look at me and ask me not to do my job. Look at yourself and ask, am I doing my job? Difficult conversations require not simply arguing against the position of another, Difficult conversations require that we develop the ability to articulate our faith, our beliefs, our convictions. 
This is particularly the case on college campuses around the country. As reports following the start of the academic year arrive, we are learning that there are documented increases in anti-Semitism on campus, picking up where things were left before the summer break. Our students must be prepared to advocate and to inform and to express with passion their views about Israel and the Jewish community. In the classes that uh, I will be teaching to our high school students, through our Hebrew high school, the Lama, Lama school as it's called, I'm putting aside the texts I usually teach and working with our students on how to respond to anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism when they reach college. Number four is the fall well rule. Know what you believe in. Be prepared to vigorous, vigorously and passionately support it. And number five is the mezuzah rule. It's the challenge of pluralism otherwise known as the Hillel and Shammai rule. You see, we can still be a community if we don't share the same beliefs on every issue. We need to understand that those with whom we disagree believe as passionately in their position as you believe in yours. And for that reason, when dealing with Israel or other issues which can become contentious, can you accept as having legitimacy a view which does not agree with yours. Can you say, I see your point, I understand how you've come to your conclusion. I, however, see things differently. We can disagree on this point, but still find places to agree. Let's take a different example. Can you have a productive and fruitful conversation with a person who disagrees with you on the issue of abortion. I've had discussions with congregants and early into the conversation, within seconds in fact, I felt the conversation spiraling down, at which point I said, you know what, let's go back to talking about Israel and the Palestinians. Some topics may be too incendiary at a given time to discuss. I sent a letter to the congregation following the simultaneous mass shootings in Texas and in Ohio and in Pittsburgh. And among other things that I said, I did not blame the presidents, the president for the shootings that took place. And on that point, I received numerous responses. Unfortunately, the president, I think, was not as, as forceful as I would have liked for him to be in, these, uh, in response to these events. But for my less than adamant position, I received impassioned responses on both sides of the issues all of which began, began with the words, with respect, Rabbi, you are wrong. He is responsible. Or you are wrong, Rabbi, the president is neither to blame nor is he responsible. 
I don't know if I'm right or wrong. Some of the comments were, were generated over a misunderstanding of the words blame and responsibility that I used to make a distinction in response to the events. But what was more important was that we were able to exchange ideas and thoughts on what is clearly a controversial topic and emerge, I think, for the most part, unscathed. I would think by name those who wrote to disagree with me, but we would probably be here too long for that. But we had, I think, a productive exchange in which I was able to state my position, others weighed in for and against, and we ended understanding each other and accepting the possibility of multiple positions. This, my friends, is the central point. This is what pluralism is about. The ability to be right without the other person being wrong. The possibility that this may be right for you, but that it's not right for me. I need not convince you that you are wrong. I can try to convince you, however, how I see myself as being right. And because we see the legitimacy of the other's view, maybe, just maybe, we could find a compromise. Which brings me to rule number five, the mezuzah rule. What's the proper way to affix a mezuzah to a doorpost? In the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch all agree that it should be on the right side of the door as one enters the room or the house. All agree that the mezuzah should be affixed about a third of the way down from the top of the doorframe. But there was a disagreement regarding whether the mezuzah should be affixed straight up and down or lying on its side. And the answer which I have studied with the class that I gave in reviewing the sources for this sermon, the answer is, let's compromise. Hang the mezuzah on the right side, about a third of the way down, tilting in on an angle. Now, what's interesting here is that the compromise satisfies neither position and yet today, everyone uses that compromise. Next time you enter a Jewish home, look at the mezuzah. If it's hung properly, it will be tilted, going in from the top on an angle. And when you see that, think about why it is on an angle. It is angled because in Jewish life, as in life in general, there is not always a right or wrong answer. Life can move forward even if we cannot agree on everything. Sometimes we need to compromise and sometimes we need to agree to disagree. The American Jewish community is at a crossroad. The paths before us do not take us toward right or wrong. The paths we take will not take us to the right or to the left. In fact, we may need to choose a new path altogether. Whatever we decide will determine the nature and the tenor of the American Jewish community 
whatever we decide may possibly define our connection to each other and to Israel for the future.